Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. The last time we were together in Joshua was actually July 21st. So it's been a little bit, and I know that you all have been on a cliffhanger waiting for us to return to this. As we finished up at the last time, we would get together to uh, the cities of Levi and the cities of Refuge. So I know that that was exciting stuff, and you're just on the edge of your seats to get back to this. Um, so this is thrilling stuff. Now, the most of us, when we read Joshua, we, some of us do make it to this part, some don't even get to this part, because the middle is so difficult to get through. After just trying to make it through all these different names and the allotments and what's going on and being sick of pronouncing all the Hebrew names and territories we don't know how to pronounce, we're tired. But if we can make it to this point, and if we can get to the end here, we are rewarded with three chapters of excellent stories and preaching, or actually these speeches by Joshua. We're seeing him finish the book out and helping us understand why he began, what's going on in the middle, and all the way to the end. Today we're going to watch as all the fighters look around them and realize that their job is complete, that they have come to rest in the land, that there has been completion up to this point, that God has come through in every one of his promises. The job is done. It's time for them now to kind of figure out what the quiet life looks like for them. We've been watching from the very beginning, and we've seen Israel learn to obey as the Lord has brought them success and prosperity. We've understood then from the very opening of the book that we learned that this doesn't come just because they're so great at what they do. They're not great fighters. They aren't the ones that will go down in history as the best ever. But rather, right from the beginning, God has told them that if you'll be very careful to do and not turn away from my law, that you will be diligent in obeying the commandments that Moses gave you. And it starts to help us understand what was the key to their success. Joshua made it very clear that if the people would engage in and nurture their relationship with Yahweh, this covenant relationship that they had, they would flourish. They would have victory. They would have success and prosperity. And just how did they do that? How did they engage in this and, and nurture this relationship? Well, it was pretty simple, actually. They were to obey his commands. The Lord had given them everything that they needed to know and love and trust him. He had given them the law through Moses, and in his law, he made his will very clear that they were to act as though Yahweh was their God, and that was the only God that mattered. All others were false idols. And before Israel ever steps foot into the promised land, God gives them the plan for success. You want to succeed? You want to have prosperity? This is what you do. Love and obey me. Not gather resources, not train really hard, not make sure you do this and have all the right strategy. Love and obey me and you will have success. Do all that I have commanded you through Moses and you will have success. That's the battle plan. That's the, the strategy, if you will. And here we see that if they will obey their gracious God and rescuer in every way, they will see prosperity and good success. So over the last 21 chapters, we've watched as this battle plan has proven itself over and over again that this is true. When Israel obeys, they have success. But when they disregard God's law, even if it's just one guy, 
taking unauthorized spoil in Jericho, disaster strikes. Not only just to him, but Israel itself faces humiliation and the threat of losing their military advantage because of this one person's sin. The battle plan has taken them from a wandering nomadic people to a group, a a legit nation of landowners. Their covenant-keeping God has rescued them from Egypt. He's delivered them from all types of enemies and has fulfilled each of his promises that he made to their forefathers, bringing them rest and bringing them to the land. The Lord had Joshua allot the land out to each of these tribes. He even placed cities of refuge among them because he was a just God and wanted justice to reign throughout the nation. Not only that, he left priesthood throughout, scattered through the people, so that they would mediate his presence to the people and teach them the law so that they would not turn. Joshua stuck to the plan. He obeyed the commands of the Lord that came through Moses, and he had success. The people, the Israelites, they stuck to the plan also. They obeyed the commands of the Lord that came through Moses, and they also had success. And at this point, it seems that we should kind of just see Joshua make his final speech and and kind of ride away in the sunset. Like, go the way of the earth and that'll be the end. It'll be a nice closeout. But our our writer doesn't do that. He's actually not finished because he knows there's much still to do. So he closes us out with a couple different ideas for help us to understand that that's not the end. The book of Joshua has given us, especially here in 2019, the keys to success in each one of the struggles that we would have and the warfare that we engage in regularly, spiritual warfare. We saw it in these instructions in Joshua 1, not turning from the left or to the right from his law, but obeying and constantly being careful to do that. The Lord is putting Israel through a formation process as a nation. But warfare is not their defining action. It's not what they continue to have to go back to. That's what makes them. Covenant faithfulness is what forms them. And consistently, again, throughout what they're going to go through, come what may, constantly this is what forms them and makes them his people, his law. Let's take a look at our text here in Joshua 22, and we're going to read through the whole story. What we'll do here is kind of read along the way, stop and explain, and keep working, make sure we understand the main ideas. Now in Joshua chapter 20, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, after that preamble, those first nine verses that commanded Israel to obey the law, we listened as Joshua went and approached the two and a half tribes on the east side of Jordan, if you remember this. And he was making sure that they understood that they still needed to go through with their promise to Moses. Moses, if you remember, had with them conquered that side of the land, Bashan, or what we'll later call Gilead. They had gone through this process and these two and a half tribes had asked if they could have possession of this place. And Moses said yes, provided that they would go with their brothers and join in the conquest of Canaan. And so at the beginning of Joshua, he went to talk to these guys and say, will you do this and make sure that they would come along? They were given the land east of the Jordan, provided they would fight. And in chapter 22, we find that these tribes had come through on their commitment. What they had promised to do, they did. Listen to the first four verses. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised. They have kept their promises. 
They have fought for the last five to seven years away from their families, toiling on the front lines for the sake of their brothers and for the sake of their promises that they made to God through Moses. What a testimony of their obedience. Do you realize that they're highlighting here obedience? Sometimes we shy away from that and we want to give and we should give all glory to God, but there is room here for us to commend one another in our faithfulness. Joshua takes the time to set aside and say, well done, continue on in this righteous living. He commends them for their faith and their obedience, and they have stayed true to what God had asked them to do. And in other words, they're showing themselves to be covenantly faithful, not only to Yahweh and no one else, but to Yahweh, and that means also to Israel, to his one another that are in that group. And so they have been faithful to God by loving their brothers. The land has been subdued and allotted, and it's time for them then to go home. Joshua now sends them home, but not without instructions, not without a charge. He will gladly send them to their possession, this good land on the east side of the Jordan, but he charges them with what's really a summary of all of the law of Moses, and he charges them to keep it. Look at verse 4. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Joshua knows the battle plan. Joshua knows the right strategy. It's constantly on his lips, but he knows it's not just for the battle. He is, in a sense, regurgitating what they all have heard before. But yet he knows it's not just about conquest, but their domestic life needs to also be dominated by obedience to God. What does that look like? Keeping covenant faithfulness. Now, he could have said this as they leave. He could have said, make sure you keep covenant faithfulness. That's your job. Make sure you keep covenantly faithful to Yahweh. That would have been sufficient. That's right. That's at the heart of the law. But instead, look what he does. He reminds them what covenant faithfulness looks like. He helps them because just like us, sometimes it's difficult to make that connection. Remembering what James said, that our faith has action. What did covenant faithfulness look like? Well, it looked like their love and complete devotion and obedience to the Lord their God. Isn't this exactly, though, what we need to hear on a regular basis? To be charged with the same message? That we, too, would not only understand the gospel, but that we would love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind, and the rest of the do's and don'ts throughout our life come back to knowing and loving this God? This is the heart of the message that we need to hear over and over again. That means for us, Christian, obey. Love the Lord your God with your heart. Loving God is obeying God. Don't turn that formula around, by the way, either. Don't, if I do the rules, what God says, then he'll love me. That's not what he says. If you properly understand your relationship with this God, then you will love him and respond in obedience. Even though it's hard, because you and I struggle, we still love ourselves. We know that. And we want the old man to die and the new man to come. And we want to do everything that we can, though, because that desire is there that he has changed us and we realize that we are redeemed. This is what the church looks like. The eastern tribes needed to hear this message as they were sent back to their land and, again, to go into the quiet life that was ahead of them. We need the same message in our daily life. 
to hear it, yes, from here on Sundays, but to encourage one another as we meet throughout the week, whether it's for coffee or just on a call. Hey, believe the truth, brother and sister. Love the Lord your God. Is what you're doing loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind? Are you completely given over to God? Man, what a good application here for us. Would we encourage one another and exhort one another regularly to this message? Joshua finishes his speech then and sends them off. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 7. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. Now, when I first read this passage, maybe it's not for you guys, but when I first read verse 8, it seemed like a strange placement. Like, why would he bring this up? These details about wealth and spoil and going to go divide it up. What does that have to do with the narrative here? And even maybe a little stranger here is, why does Joshua only point out Manasseh in verse 7? He doesn't call all three. So what's the point here? Let's start, begin that second question first and we'll go backwards. Just consider the fact of this. When he calls out Manasseh, he is probably seeing Manasseh as a representative of the two and a half tribes. Think about who they are. Think about their people. They have been willing to divide and go one part over here and one part over here. One on the east side of the Jordan, one on the west side of the Jordan. And so even in them, as he representatively called out to them, it's what we're seeing kind of as the whole. Manasseh is a picture of the two and a half tribes that are willing to break from their brothers, the other ten and a half tribes, for a good possession in the east. And don't for a moment think that this was rebellious, because we just see even right here that this was, as he said, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. This was sanctioned and right. This was a good land that was given to them. And as such then, Joshua uses this and to understand and helps them understand some details before they get into the trouble that they're going to in a moment. Like I said at the beginning, I didn't quite understand why he was talking about wealth, iron, clothing, livestock, all the stuff that they're supposed to go back and separate out. But after you read the rest of the, of, of the, of the, the story, it starts to make a little more sense. Our author is not randomly... <laughs> bragging on all the spoil that came out of the land of Canaan, but instead commanding that this group, this group is going to go back east, is to take and return to their land east of the Jordan, and we realize that they are laying legitimate claim to the spoil that came from Canaan. Where have they been? Where have they been conquering and and doing this work and taking spoil? Not in their possession, but rather over in Canaan. And what Joshua is telling them to do is to say, well, all that you have taken here, the livestock, the iron, the silver and gold, all of this, take back to your place and distribute among your brothers and divide it. In other words, you, are, you have every claim to this just like any other tribe of Israel. You are not a second-class tribe just because you are over on the other side of the Jordan. That will make sense as we get further on in the story and you'll understand why that's important. But even here, he's baking it into the nair of helping us understand that they are a legitimate tribe, that they receive the same blessing that everyone else does. Not something that they are like, well, you just go over there and get your stuff. 
They are truly Israel, and they lay claim then to legitimate Israelite land. At this point in the whole story, we may not know it, but in a few verses, we are about to see that their identity and their land claims are going to be questioned and challenged. And it's going to shed, shed doubt on this whole endeavor on the east side of the Jordan. Let's look at verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, um, heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Whew. No, this does not sound good. Remember what just happened. They just had this probably emotional, wonderful meeting that they sent them back to their land. They had obeyed. They had done all the right things. And now they're ready to make war against them. What is going on here? These guys are their brothers in peace. And they sent them off in rejoicing. And now they're, they're ready to start a war against them? Let's find out what's going on. Look at verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent, the people of, sent to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. So what we have here is a well-defined, well-represented delegation of those ten tribes that are in Israel in the land of Canaan, led by a priest, Phinehas. Don't miss that. This is not just a political battle. This is not just something that's going on that they'll figure out amongst the different organizations. They are led by Phineas, one who represents and mediates the presence of God to his people. This is not just political, but it is highly religious. And something has happened. They're so concerned that this would be headed out by a priest. Look at verse 15. They came to the people of Reuben, people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Okay, let's, get, let's talk about this accusation that they're making from the Western tribes. They ask this, this is a cool question they ask. What is this breach of faith against God in turning away from following the Lord by building an altar in rebellion against the Lord? So you got three steps here. Guys, you built an altar. This is an act of rebellion against God. And therefore, this is a breach of faith. Okay, why was this considered an act of rebellion? We should be asking that. 
another altar, more worship to God, it seems like a good thing. Why was it wrong for the eastern tribes to build an altar so much so that they were going to come against them and war against them? They had had their fill of war, and still here they are ready to come to arms about this thing. There are two possibilities for us why this is so important. The first is very simple, and you'll catch it yourself. If someone's built an altar, it's very possible that they are worshiping foreign gods. If they're worshiping foreign gods, it's very clear. It's idolatry, and there's a huge breach of faith. So that's possible. However, the second, it could be that they are worshiping Yahweh, but that they have done it on an unauthorized altar. I'm not, you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 12, it's clear that Israel was not to worship Yahweh the way that the Canaanites worshiped their gods. If you remember, the Canaanites worshiped their gods in the way that they wanted to, with whoever they wanted to, wherever they wanted to. They would perform their ceremonies in these coinciding, disgusting orgies on every high mountain, on the hills, and even under every green tree, he says. Yahweh was not to be worshipped in the same way. Yahweh is to be worshipped in one central location, in his way, by his people, with his methods. Now, to be honest, Deuteronomy 20, 12 does not completely prohibit another altar. But what it makes very clear is that it requires Israel to seek the place that God would have the altar, where he would choose to do this. So think of what it must have looked like when the Western tribes see this huge altar going up, and they haven't sought the Lord about it, and it's happening in Israel. Immediately they know there's a problem. No one said it's either one thing or another thing, and they're both bad. So what do they do? They confront them saying, didn't you learn from what happened at Peor? That small group of people's sin affected the entire congregation. Or don't you know that if you rebel, we will also feel the wrath of God, the anger of God will be against us? They plead with them, please do not do this. In fact, if your land is unclean, <clears throat> if your land is unclean and you feel like it makes you unworthy to come worship at Shiloh, why don't you stop living there? Come with us. You can hear the love come out in their voices here. They are willing to give of their own possession so that Israel would not walk away from God. They are willing to give so that they would not obey God, uh, disobey God. They say, we are willing for you to have some of our land. Whatever you do, though, don't rebel against God. Whatever you do, don't rebel because you know what else? It'll make us rebels as well. Didn't you learn from Achan when he sinned earlier on in this land? Remember what happened? It affected everyone. God's wrath fell on the entire congregation of Israel. The Western ten and a half tribes understand then corporate unity. They understand that it's not you guys over there and us over here. They understand that before God, these 12 tribes have made a covenant with God. And they understand that sin affects the whole. They confront the east, uh, the east then on this basis. From what they can see, again, it looks as though they have built an altar for worshiping God in their way, in a new nation, in a new place, on a new altar. They know that their brothers are doing things that will affect them and that these are against the ways of the Lord. They're unified people before God, and they realize that this will affect them. They bring up two examples. We talked about this before. Peor, we said, what is that? That's when they intermarried, or at least intermingled with the people of Moab. They began worshiping Baal, 
and began giving themselves over to idolatry. At that time, I'm not going to go there. You should go there in Numbers 25. Check out the story of zeal for the Lord through Phineas, who continually goes after the holiness of God so that it would be not dragged through the mud, but rather the people would see God rightly and act in faithfulness. But then he also talks about Achan and how Achan, when he did this, he had ramifications, not just for him, not just for his family. But remember how many men died at I? 36 of these warriors died senselessly because of his sin. And remember at Baal of Peor, what happened there, 23,000 were involved in the plague who died. In other words, they understand that sin affects the whole. And they say, stop, before this goes any further. They are ready to weed out sin at this point. They're zealous for complete obedience to the Lord. Notice two things, though, for us. First, they are willing to settle and work zealously to confront sin and zealously attack that which would bring harm to the body of Israel. This is a good thing. What they're doing is not wrong. It's very much right. They're confronting sin and saying, we don't want any of this in our zone. You can imagine this wasn't easy. It would have been far easier for them to say, hey, they're over across the Jordan. God will judge them over there. Out of sight, out of, sight, out of mind, it can't be that bad. But again, their history told them they were a unit and they had to be serious about this sin. And so in their willingness for God's holiness and love for brother, they go confront them. That person's sin, they know, will destroy them. But not only that, the person's sin will bring much harm to the body, or as we would call the body of Christ. For them, all of national Israel, who is to be God's people. We ought to be willing then, as we think about this, to also fight against sin. Not fight for no reason. There's no desire for that. The New Testament is full of understanding that we would never fight with one another. But we ought to be more than willing to fight against sin and to sacrifice for one another for the sake of pulling a brother or a sister from apostasy, unbelief. But that's not all. Christians sometimes get lambasted for being contentious and argumentative. If that had been true, we would have seen this end very differently. Instead of him just saying, they gather at Shiloh to make war, and then they made war. What happens? They gather at Shiloh to make war, and then they send this delegation in to talk, to investigate, to bring the charges to them, to make sure they are sure before they take some severe action that they might regret because they didn't understand what was going on. These Western tribes approach this properly. Back verse in verse 12, they, they don't attack yet. They stay there. They send this delegation in, and we see that this is an act of love and complete allegiance to God. And they want their brothers not to be in the situation. Instead of attacking and jumping right to that, they're bringing them in and saying, what's going on? We observe another member of Christ's church. If we do that today, sinning amongst us, we should never jump straight to excommunicate them, get them out of the church, or let's drag their name through the mud. Absolutely not. Rather, we would want to actually follow what they have done here and quietly go and sternly and lovingly say, brother or sister, are you sinning? It looks as though this is sin in your life. Turn from that. Don't do that. Don't bring judgment upon yourself and all of us that call our names as, as Christians. You should turn from this sin and do what is right. We ought to learn then from these brothers, and they have shown us the right way to do it. Not just lambasting them all over, or hurting them, or 
even destroying them, but rather in love, coming alongside to investigate and find out what's going on. You know what? Not only was it loving, it was wise. Look at verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know itself. It's almost like he's saying, we call out the name of the holy God. And then he does it again to make sure they understand they're being serious and says, what God knows, it's time for you to know. It's in a sense that they don't have anything else to swear by but say, no, the Lord knows us. Look how he continues. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from the following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Notice that the East does not defend itself. They actually agree. If that's what's going on, if we're sacrificing this way, you're right. May the Lord take vengeance on us. That's what we deserve. This is what should actually happen to those that would worship in this way. But the altar, we learn here in this text, isn't used for sacrifices. It isn't functional at all in the way that we would think of an altar to be. It's a monument. It's a memorial. It's a place for us to see something, an object for us to see and remember. And therefore, it has a very different purpose. Look at verse 24. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not, <clears throat> not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Okay, let's break down this response. Why did the eastern tribes build this altar if not to use it for sacrifices? I mean, that makes sense. You build an altar to put sacrifices and offerings on it. The two and a half tribes respond, we built this not to be a functioning altar, but to be a memorial, a monument, a physical object that would stand as a witness between the East and the West for generations to come. Okay, but, but why did you build it? The East realized that something literally separated them from the West. Now, we live in Hampton Roads. There's water everywhere. That means there's also bridges everywhere. If you take a look at this land, you're going to realize there's water nowhere. <laughs> It's nothing like our land in that way. There's no bridges across the Jordan in this time whatsoever. You either had to wait until the, the seasons died down to get across, or you had to make sure that the people who were going to cross knew how to swim pretty well. That's the way that you crossed the Jordan. It was an imposing boundary, not of what Israel was, but between the east and the west. And they realized that this was true. The Jordan River was a very much a, a reason why the next generation might say, 
that group over there, they're not in our boundary. Now, we understand boundaries pretty well. We understand even our country right now and the war that's going on about boundaries and what that means for the nations around us. And it's very easy for them. They have the same struggle here and they're, they're admitting saying, we think that it's possible in the future. Your generations will say, you have no portion in Israel. You're not even within our land. You're across that place over there. We can hardly get to you. What portion do you have in Israel? And so obviously, they seem like they're separated from Canaan, and this could possibly really happen. The, the fathers and the people that are there say together, we do not want that to happen to our children. They didn't stand and fight alongside of us and these Western tribes together. This generation knows us, but the future generations may not understand how close of a union we have. So we've got to do something about this. Listen to the concern of the Eastern tribes in verse 25. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Their main concern is not worshiping other gods. It's not that they would separate themselves off and have a good time over here on the east of the Jordan. Their concern is that their children, the generations to follow, would continue to love and trust and know God that they would not be judged, but rather that they would continue in covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Now, that should be ringing some bells. Caleb read something this morning, Deuteronomy 6. It's almost like the Eastern tribes took Deuteronomy 6 to a whole new level. If you think about what happened in Deuteronomy 6, he talks about instruction. Of course, loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. But then he talks about parents teaching the next generation. He does so and talks about it like this. Teach to them as you sit in your house. And when you walk in the roads, when you lie down, when you rise up, in other words, all the time, be teaching them. What should I do about it? What kind, of, what kind of helps along the way? How about this? Write it on your doorways. Put it on your hands. Put it on his front lip between your eyes. Put it on your gates. Put it everywhere. It's almost as though they're saying, we understand Deuteronomy 6. What we're going to do, even though we'll put it on all those places, we're going to put a, a, this huge monument so our children will see that we worship Yahweh as a reminder saying the thing that unifies us is not our land boundary. The thing that unifies us is actually worship to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He kind of says to them through these actions that they are willing to say to their children, we will do anything that it takes rightly to encourage you to know and trust and love our God Yahweh. What are the Eastern tribes doing as they construct this oversized altar? They are doing everything that they can in their precarious situation to teach their children for generations to come to love and worship Yahweh. Now, not only are they teaching their children, they are making a reminder for the rest of Israel that the Israelites who live in Canaan and the Israelites who live in Gilead worship Yahweh as Lord. It's not only for their children. It is to be a testimony or a witness for both of them to see and in fact, it did its job. It got their attention and they came. What an example for us. An understanding here, the reminder of a zealous obedience that goes out of its way to do the commands of the Lord. So I'll ask you, how have you done this in your own family for those that have children or a spouse? How have you continued to teach and instruct your children one another in what it means to follow the Lord in who he is in his ways how have you done this in your own family, among your own children? How have you proclaimed Christ to them? Have you taught them what it means to submit to Jesus and him alone? Do you take time from your week to proclaim allegiance to Christ and to teach them what God says about their state? 
Brothers and sisters, heed the example of the eastern tribes. As they care so deeply about generations to come that they will be covenantly loyal, they make this altar as a memorial for them to do that. But second, have you made it clear not only to your children, but to the world, publicly showing the rest of the body of Christ that you are indeed on Jesus' side? We can learn a great deal from these guys. Have you accepted Christ and followed him in believer's baptism and joined the local church, understanding that Christ doesn't just save individuals, but saves his church body? And those who are part of his church are then called to love one another. The Eastern tribes made it plain to all, to their children, to their neighbors, to their, all the, even their neighbors in, in Canaan and their brothers, that they loved and served Yahweh. And they were committed to this relationship. And forever until the, it was destroyed, that was meant to show their allegiance to God and to remind them. The very same principle is applicable for us. Have you made it public then that you are with Jesus and therefore that you are with his church? It makes sense to us to understand that his people understand allegiance to him more than any other allegiance ever in their life. The Eastern tribes build this altar. They build it not for sacrifices, but to remind everyone that they were Israel, and that chiefly meant that they worshiped Yahweh. Now, as you and I sit and take this response in, so did the Western tribes. They're almost dumbfounded by this response. Listen to verse 30. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, were settled. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The Western delegation is satisfied. They hear this response. They understand it and they're satisfied. They clearly understand the intent of what the Eastern tribes are trying to do and they're good with the memorial altar. Phineas returns back to Canaan and speaks this report then to the rest of the people. And the people are also satisfied, understanding the intent of the eastern tribes. No more talks of war. No more talks about the eastern side of Jordan as a lesser part of Israel. This memorial altar stood as a witness between the east and the west to show that the Lord was God over all of this people, all of these tribes. It was a reminder that their union was not about who was inside the boundary markers, but rather who covenantly was faithful to their Lord Yahweh. So the question is, what is this all about then for us? What's going on here that we're seeing? Consider this fact. Both parties in this are right. It's not like one was right and one was wrong. Both are after the same thing. 
They're both after covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, which is expressed in obedient worship and living according to his ways. Now, the West is concerned for purity of worship, and they're zealous for obedience to God. And so what they do, they, once they hear about this altar, they go after and confront their brothers. But the East is so concerned that their children will cease to worship God, the Lord, that they make this altar so that they would not be in, in a number of those who do not know God. And so both of them are after the similar thing, that they would be faithful to God. Both understand that talk, then, is cheap. What they say to be true about themselves isn't enough. They agree, then, with what James says, faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. Both understand that covenant faithfulness to the one who delivered them from judgment looks like a life of gratitude and worship and servitude. And this then will lead to action. The person who has experienced the love of Jesus Christ understands that his actions earn him nothing. You and I can act and act and act all day, but we cannot provide for ourselves a way of redemption and salvation. But we understand that our life has been forever changed because of the work of Christ. And now we have been bought by a new master. And he requires complete allegiance. This morning's message is not about doing lots of good stuff, not being a moral person and more Christian. It's not about obeying rules so that you might earn favor with God. If you know anything about the Christian message, that's ridiculous. All your good deeds, according to him in and of yourself, amount up to filthy rags. It's disgusting to him. We understand the truth. Your actions cannot save you. Only by trusting Jesus Christ and his work in the substitutionary atonement. In other words, Jesus taking our judgment by his death can we ever have freedom from the wrath of God? The people of Israel understood their redemption and they acted accordingly. They gladly chose to obey Yahweh and follow the commands that were given to them by Moses. That didn't mean it was easy, but this was the course that they set to obey. In this passage, Joshua is showing us clearly the battle strategy is also the domestic life strategy. It's the same. Nothing is changing that we would not swerve to the left or to the right from God's law, but that we would obey in every part of it. The instructions that we found in Joshua 1, this preamble, are not about, you know, uh, just, just good for that part of, the, the, of Joshua, but good for us today as well. There are actions for us to take as we learn to be his covenant-keeping people. Today we made several stops along the way. I made a lot of different applications along the way. But this is not exhaustive. But they all apply, and they all help us here to understand what life in covenant faithfulness with Yahweh looks like. So I'll ask the questions. Have you obeyed in all that he has called you to do? Do you commend others for their good works and encourage them in the pursuit of Christ? Do you remind yourself of the gospel of Christ and preach to yourself the truths of the first great commandment to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind? Are you willing to confront another brother or sister's sin and actually do it in love and grace in a way that shows them so much that you want them to be restored and for their good? Do you proclaim Christ to your family, your, your children, or teach them God's way? And have you publicly declared that Christ is your king through baptism and trusting him alone and joining the local church? Again, I've said it before, this is not an exhaustive list. 
These are just parts of understanding what it means to follow Yahweh, to be faithful to this covenant-keeping God. So brothers and sisters, we have to listen to the message of Joshua 22. The battle may be over, but the message is still the same. As lovers of Jesus Christ, we must submit to him in every area of our lives, obeying the Lord Jesus with joy. Let's pray together. Our God, we are thankful for your word. Holy Spirit, would you take the words that I've said today and strip away the junk, and would you let your word plant deep into our hearts so that we believe and we'd obey and we'd follow and we'd love you. We cannot do this and we are unable to do this task in and of ourselves. But may we be even, as Joshua commended the eastern tribes, obedient, fulfilling what it means to follow you, to love you and listen to every charge that you've given to us. God, we will rely completely on you and we ask that you would do your work so that your kingdom may come, that you would continue to do your work and we would trust you forever. We thank you for your love, and we worship you today together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua, and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.